saw in a different article where it says that it can work with other identity providers. Um, interesting. That says the private app exchange does have an identity capability, but it requires companies to install software on their own servers to take advantage of a cloud service. Huh? Maybe huh. that's like a maybe that's a uh, uh, what's Microsoft's identity solution? Uh, not DNA. What is it? Uh, Active Directory. A, yeah, AD. Yeah. Um, maybe it's uh, yeah because I, I think that in fact it's another thing I had in my topic here was that was it Okta? So so Okta is an identity provider that works with Salesforce. And in fact, the guy who runs it, I think his name's Todd McKinnon. He used to work for Salesforce, but uh, anyway, he's the CEO of Okta now. But, um, oh, yeah. So he was saying that Salesforce's identity service is kind of like a, a lightweight service at this point. Um, it requires, uh, or no, they, they're licensing or they bought, I think they're licensing. Like it requires some other product, like an on-premise product, if you want to use it with Active Directory. Whereas Okta has that all built natively in the in the service, so he was uh, kind of throwing some darts at Salesforce about that. Hmm. It sounded a little paranoid, though, like uh, a little insecure from that guy. Well, that'd be interesting. I mean, identity is something new. It looks like they're they're going to push it a little bit more. Obviously, Dreamforce is in a week, two weeks, so I'm sure we'll hear more about it. Um, I'm really hoping to get a lot more information a lot of these technologies um that they've been they've kind of announced and put out there but there's really not much information that at least i can find um without actually digging and messing with it too much i throw a curveball at you here with some some audio is this another quiz or what no it's just i was browsing around and found some interesting uh benioff clips this so i think these are all from TechCrunch disrupt which was sometime this year i don't know this fall or maybe it was in the summer i don't know Anyway, um, all right, so here's one for you. The clarifying question that I okay. think is, right. you've always given a lot, the whole, I mean, the, 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 the sort of wave, 1% all the way through, but did he give much before he retired, or did he sort of save it all up? And no. So this is about Bill Gates, by the way. It's Benioff talking about Gates. No. Yeah, he didn't. He really, and not only that, he didn't create a culture of philanthropy, which I think is the greatest opportunity as an entrepreneur. Yeah. The ability to give back. Yeah. Is built right into every company in this room. Yeah. And your employees want to 1% do it. 1% of your profits. 1%, 1 of, your of your equity. Yeah. 1% of your profits. Yeah. And 1% of your employees' time. Is it so much to ask? The ability to give back is, is a jewel yeah. that is in every one of these companies that we yeah. start, that all it needs to be done is be polished. And that will sparkle and make your company so much better that you're not just in it to make a bunch of dough. And there's nothing wrong with making a bunch of dough, but make a bunch of dough and give back. It really is awesome. You know, one thing that was hard for startups. Yeah. It really, it really is awesome. So, so we're talking about the one, one, one. Well, that's what he was talking about, and it's so. Um, you know, I think I think the Salesforce Foundation, and and even before that, I think Mark. Um, did a lot of charity. Uh, it seems like, I mean, he's been successful for a long time and it sounds like he's always been involved in, in giving back some. So, uh, but it's, I think it's kind of uncouth to be so critical of someone of another person, Bill Gates, who is incredibly philanthropic and is probably going to leave all of his money to charity. I would imagine. I think, didn't he sign that pledge with Warren Buffett and some of these other guys? Anyway. Yeah, I think he is. 
And the other thing is when he's he's comparing himself to Bill Gates, he's comparing Mark comparing his one 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 to Bill Gates. Well, what if some other guy came along and said, "Well, I'm doing two two two, so now you're the schmuck." You well, know, it's like I don't know that he's comparing Bill Gates to it. I think he's talking about Microsoft in general, isn't he? Because he he's basically saying that he didn't that he didn't instill in Microsoft some kind of charitable portion of it. I guess. I mean, it, it's hard for anyone to argue that Bill Gates is not charitable. I mean, his foundation is is tremendous and has done a lot it's billions uh, well like hundreds of billions yeah but let me ask you this so what is what is one percent of zero well benioff will will say zero because that's what they started with no i'm asking you what is one percent of zero zero okay because how much money has salesforce made in the past three years zero you're talking profits it's one percent of profits that's what the one percent is it's one percent of time and one percent of profits. He would he even clarified that. So, yeah, but I don't think that's a hard and fast rule. I mean, it, it, either Benioff has put put his personal funds on the line or, or he's put Salesforce funds on the line. But he has he has contributed quite a bit of money. In fact, I think they they have a wing of some hospital. I think maybe it's a children's hospital. I believe with Benioff's name on it. Yeah, like I said, I I know he he's a, a very charitable guy. But to be so uh, comparing compare you know comparative yeah i think so he just I, needs to he doesn't he needs to you know give give whatever he wants to give and quit being so critical <laughs> i think so too but anyway i, I think i think the his whole argument just it was was hard to at least from what i heard because that was the first time i heard that that clip or, or even that what was it a spec uh, an interview yeah um from that clip i mean it, it sounded like he expected bill gates to do more and I, i'm assuming he meant Microsoft instilling that in Microsoft that it would be part of Microsoft's culture. All right, so I got another one for you. It's um, still Benioff talking about Bill Gates. Who should be the next CEO of Microsoft? Gates. Whoa, 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 whoa. He's happier. He's done all this. To, you want him to stop helping the world because, well, that's important. It's not as important as him running Microsoft? I think the only way to save Microsoft right now because it is such a disaster is because is he knew it needed to come back, not forever, but for a specified period of time, let's say 36 months, because he needs to push the reset button on two things. Yeah. He needs Okay, so Microsoft is a disaster. <laughs> He's right about that. <laughs> I agree. Anyway, okay. And I, I think that, I mean, who else, who else do you bring in to run Microsoft? I mean, really? Yeah, I don't know. It's a problem. I think people are looking for a part two of of Steve Jobs, which is, you know, he left the company, it went to crap, he came back, and it is what it is today. And I think people <clears throat> look at the situation at Microsoft and, and wonder if, if bringing Bill back, Bill Gates back in, in control of the company, if he can do something similar with Microsoft. Yep. To push the reset button on his mantras that he installed in the company like Windows everywhere and all this. Yeah. He's got a, bun a bunch of mantras, which are these processes that still... Okay, so what does it mean to push the reset button on the mantras? Does he mean to kill them or to reinvigorate them? I, I would think reinvigorate them. I mean, he, he continued on, at least from what I heard, to, to talk about those and those same mantras that, that were repeated out in the past. And I think he wants Gates to come in and, and kind of breathe new life into them, make them relevant again. W windows everywhere, the windows everywhere mantra. I mean, I think that's, 
to me, that's what that's one of Microsoft's biggest problems is they're so tied to Windows. They think everything has to be Windows centric, and that has that it's caused them to screw a lot of screw up a lot of initiatives. Um, anyway, still running the company that are not doing the company any good. And number two, he needs to push the reset button on people, not just get rid of Bomber, but he's got a lot of people in that company that he needs to re yeah, either yeah. hit the reset button on. And there's nothing wrong with that. And by the way, they can go and get great jobs and do things uh, in lots of other companies. But he's yeah. got to reset the company. And he's the only one, I think, who can really do it. What was worse for I, the I mean <laughs> They can get other jobs. Just fire them all. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy for him to say. Okay. I could be proved wrong, but I think he could do it. And he would have to take a break from saving the world. But his wife is so yeah. fabulous and doing such a great job. Fabulous. She can continue with that for 36 months or whatever the number is. Yeah. He can jump in there for 36 months. And then part of his 36 months is hit the reset button on the mantras, yeah. hit the reset button on the people, and hire the new CEO. Those are the three things he needs to do. do you I'm, I'm going to start hitting the reset button on my mantras. <laughs> I think that's my problem. I need, I need mantras. What can my mantra be? I don't know that bringing Gates in for a short-term commitment like that is the right message or the right thing to do. I think I think he might be talking about bringing Gates in to, to at least come in and pick the new CEO and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of installing a new culture, that's going to be the job of the new CEO. So I just don't see that working. It's either Gates and he runs the show or or Gates, you know, he's still on the board. He can still have influence over who, who the new CEO is as it is today. So I don't, I don't see what bringing him in for 36 months does to help anything. We need to come up with some mantras for me. That's all I know. Do you believe this will happen? I don't know. I have no idea. I'm just telling you what I would do if I was... Yeah. Did you tell him was, this when you saw him last week? I told Dan Farber, and he wrote it up. So it's all awesome. All, yeah. My work is done. Um, what happens to Microsoft if he doesn't come back? What do, you, do you think that they'll uh, be around in 10 years? Uh, sure, of course, Microsoft will be around in 10 years, but in what role? You know, yeah. 10 years ago, they con had command and control over our industry, and today yeah. they are just, you know, a large, very large company who likes to throw its, you know, weight around and try to be disruptive. Yeah, he's, he's right about that. Yeah. I mean, Microsoft is so lost and confused and directionless right now. They really are. I mean, some of the new stuff they come out with, even for for developers um the licensing model is expensive and and so didn't they so they've had a what is it they uh what did they try to launch oh so the surface launch the windows the whole windows rt confusion um that's been kind of a mess yeah i mean they have an app store now but it's only windows 8 so if you want to it's it's only windows 8 and it's only rt so if you want to build a application for for the App Store, um, you have to code it for the latest and greatest Windows 8, which not everyone's on. So if, if you're a company looking to develop an app, um, you basically have to write two apps or at least compile two different apps. And Balmer also got a lot of criticism for, I guess he was a big fan of the stack ranking. You know, just you, you're basically forcing all of your employees into a, into a, and to a normal distribution curve and, you know, fitting them to a model that people don't necessarily fit to. So you're forced to, you know, say bad things about people that have done a pretty good job. Yeah.
So I, well, I think in general, our, the, the industry, the, the industry itself is, is struggling with, with these new business models, these new entirely web-based subscription-based models. I mean, you have Microsoft who's struggling with, with their antiquated models and their antiquated way of doing business. And they, they just can't deliver the stuff that these, these newer companies are doing. There are other examples in other parts of the industry. I mean, you've got BlackBerry, who who also is having a hard time transitioning to these new models, to the new technologies. Um, and they pretty much own the market as well. Well, I think RIM was single-handedly killed by the iPhone. Maybe. I mean, and, and their answer if, to it was not was just not quite good enough. I think that's that's the better point to make is that their response to it. I mean, there anyone who responded to the iPhone and thought it oh, it was just a a fluke, a gimmick, or whatever um, ended up playing catch up. And if they didn't catch up, they ended up like Rim. So this is uh, so Mark talking about his early days. I started programming when I was a young teenager. Yep and had my own software company when I was uh, 14, 15 years old. So are you allowed to, can you get a business license when you're 14 years old? I mean, <laughs> what state was this? I wonder, I guess this was California. You know, there, there are plenty of people back then who, um, you know, we got to remember he's, he's older than us, isn't he? By at oh, least yeah. a decade. Yeah. He's like, he's almost 50. Yeah. Yeah. So, so back then, you know, people would hire anyone who could, who could code and on and do stuff. Well, hiring is one thing, but owning your own business when you're 14, I don't know. I well, they would they would usually hire them as contractors or something like That's that. That's not what he said, though. He said he owned his own business. All right. Well, he wrote arcade games, and then I went... He wrote arcade games. Okay. Okay. Uh, then I got involved in, in, in Apple, and I worked in the Macintosh division, and I wrote the first native assembly language on the Macintosh. <laughs> Benioff is the first assembly writer for the Macintosh. I don't think he's trying to say that he wrote the assembly language, just that he worked in the Macintosh division and I wrote the first native assembly language on the Macintosh. I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> I'd have to look into his background to understand that. I mean, if, if so, if that's true, that's really cool. Yeah, that, that, that is he, that, that he was into that and he was, you know, obviously, I mean, he's a smart dude, right? Uh, that that's really cool though. I, yeah. that just sounds strange. Cause you know, he was like 20 years old and, you know, back then that, that, this was 80, that's what would have been around 84, I think, which is right when the Mac came out and probably most of the programming they were doing, at least on the core system, that was probably all assembly. So he's, he basically wrote the first software for the Mac that ran the Mac. That's the claim here. That's oh, true. That's pretty awesome. But, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's just the way he says it casually almost kind of makes it seem like. Like it's a like it's it's a half fake brag. I don't know. I just <laughs> humble brag. <laughs> yeah, it's just right. like one of those things that I really. It's almost like Gore casually mentioned he invented the internet. I just yes. it's it <laughs> for some reason it rings like that to me. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I did that while I also I went to college. I finished my college degree at USC, and then I went to work for Oracle. All right. So. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Um, so, yeah, so in high school, this is, I think I saw this on Wikipedia. He designed Atari computer games. He did Crypt. Oh, Crypt of the Undead and Escape from Vulcan's Island. Huh. I'll have um, to find an emulator for that and see how they were. So, okay, so then he went to college. This would have been oh, 80, 82. Um, 
It was while he was in college that he wrote the first assembly for the Mac. While he was in college. Okay. I don't know. I'd like to know what his degree was. I think he went to USC. He graduated college. Then he went to work at for Oracle, not Apple. And you know what his first job was at Oracle? Or how he got started? No. He took orders on their 1-800 line. Really? I mean, this doesn't even make any sense. Like, it makes, that's what makes the whole previous part of the story sound unbelievable. Huh. Like, you're, sure, you're this genius assembly programmer writing the first software for the, for the Mac, and you're writing Atari games when you're 14, 15 years old. Uh, you, go, you graduate from USC, and you go to work for Oracle as an 1-800 order taker. Maybe it's one of those situations where or he really wanted to work work at Oracle and they didn't have a developer opening, but he wanted to get his foot in the door and work his way up. I I don't know. It could be. That, I mean, like I said, he's a smart guy. I know. I don't. I mean, it was a different time, it. wasn't it? Wasn't it a time where you started in the mailroom and you worked your way up in a company? I mean, we don't have that anymore. We uh, have this I entitlement guess. culture now where you graduate college and you're supposed to get a hundred dollar a year or hundred thousand dollar a year job. But if you're one of the foundational software developers for the Mac, you don't, you're not really working your way up. I mean, you've, you've already started, right? I mean, uh, it was just, it was definitely a career change, I guess you could say. I mean, he, interesting. Yeah. And and it worked out well for him because he was at Oracle for, I mean, I think, I think he was rookie of the year, his first year there. And by like three years later, he was a vice president. So, yeah. yeah. All right. So a little bit more about Apple. Uh, let's see. The most important thing for Apple is to realize themselves that is when they get up on stage they still kind of want to look like Steve and act yeah. like Steve and even I looked at some of the old announcement the announcements they did recently and before they do a video they always have a vid, uh, slide that says video on it and I love that because it's something he always did he would always say and now I'm going to show you a video and the word video would go on the screen yeah. and then the video would play but I think for them they need to find themselves and be who they are, and I think that in many ways they're still trying to be him, and instead they just need, they're great guys actually. I have a lot of respect and a lot of admiration for Tim Cook, uh, for Phil Schiller, for yeah. the whole team. I think they're a phenomenal team, a team that any company in this room would be thrilled to have any one of them. Yeah. Um, they just need to be who they are truly, and um, and respect the past, but as Steve would say, uh, uh, project the future. And it has to come from them. And I think that's the only path forward for Apple. I disagree. If so, if they remove the word video from the beginning of their videos, then that will be their path forward. <laughs> You're focusing on that one thing. No, I, I I I actually completely disagree with him on that. I think. I don't think they're trying to play Steve Jobs. I think Steve Jobs did a great job in instilling a certain type of culture and brought those people in to who also subscribe to that culture. And I think they are being themselves. I think I don't think they're necessarily just trying to be up there and pretend to be Steve and, and do what he would do. I think I think he did a great job of picking the right people and putting them in the right place because they also believed in in, in his ideals. I've actually heard it time and time again from different analysts talking about how, you know, what happens next? You know, are they just being Steve? Are they just kind of, you know, resting on whatever he last did and all those kind of things? But 
I'm sorry. What Apple does is not a one-man production. All these people were involved when Steve Jobs was there in producing these products, in developing them, releasing them, and putting the marketing around them. I don't think that they're just playing jobs, that they're, I think this is them. I, I kind of agree with you. I mean, I definitely think that Steve set a tone and a style, and I I think they, they're, and it was so valuable and so successful that I think they're trying to, um, to some degree, maintain some of that style. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, the new personalities that have taken over the, you know, the, the executives and the people that are doing the demos, um, and even people that are just building products, right. And working on things at Apple, I think it seems like they're trying to be themselves. That's, that's probably a hard thing to do for someone like Tim Cook is to, he's got so much pressure on him from customers and analysts and the stock market to continue what Steve was doing. So how do you deal with that pressure? of knowing you're supposed to just don't, you know, whatever you do, don't screw up what Steve built here. Um, but at the same time, be yourself. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a tall order, but I, I think, you know, I mean, I think Tim Cook has done a, a pretty good job of it. Um, well, I'd, I'd say he's, he's being himself. I mean, and I think Mark what? was just kind of speaking off the cuff. I mean, I don't think he had thought this thought out ahead. I think that's what he was trying to say really was that just that, um, you know, be don't feel like you have to do things exactly how Steve did, you know, find your own personality, be yourself. And, uh, you know, cause it's just more natural that way. You'll, you'll be more successful. I, yeah, I, I'd agree. I, th I think that might be what he was trying to say. Um, because I, I certainly don't think it's them just trying to be jobs. I, I wholeheartedly believe that this is them. They're doing what they want to do. So when I was looking at some of the private app exchange information, um, I saw an article that was talking about like how many apps there are on the app exchange and some of the dollar amounts. Mm -hmm. And supposedly this is, I guess a Salesforce quote. They're talking about the Apple's app store saying that developers see an average of $7,000 per app in returns. And they followed that up with the average return for a, an app listed on the app exchange is $400,000. Yeah, they, they shared similar numbers um, last year at Dreamforce at the developer conference, or at least the developer sessions. And it, it makes sense. I mean, the, the Apple App Store is, you know, one-time payments. It's, unless you're talking newspaper or newspapers or magazines, or, you're not talking subscriptions. Most things on the App Exchange are subscription-based model. So however many users you have, times however the monthly fee is for each one of those users and then you can do the annual plan so there's quite a bit more margin on the app exchange size than i think there is on the app store i mean yeah but just go do a random sampling of apps on the app exchange i mean most of them aren't worth a dollar i mean to say that the average app is making four hundred thousand dollars that just struck me as off by orders of magnitude but could be like, wrong i mean even some of the smallest, most simplest applications that provide something like deduping and things like that, they're subscription-based and they're based on the number of users. And if you factor in enterprise customers who have, you know, 500 to 1,000 users, you know, that's that's a lot of change. I, no, I agree. I just, out of the 100 deduping apps, there's probably two or three of them that make any money at all. Maybe, but the ones that do make a killing. I guess so. I mean, if that's a, if that's a real number, that's great. I'd just, yeah found that to be interesting they did say that they're like the total count of applications on the app exchange is up 27 percent year over year um, but they don't say they didn't really say what it was 
two million installs for two thousand apps. I think there's I think there's like, like around two thousand apps. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say that there are roughly three million custom apps built on Force.com. I'm not sure how they measure that or what that even means, though. What do you think that means? I, I'm assuming maybe custom native apps that were native app exchange applications. Just, I think it's private. I don't think it's even. I don't think it's talking about app exchange because there's definitely not. So any just counting all managed packages across the board, maybe even unmanaged. Maybe they're just counting every org. And I mean, there's not even three million Salesforce customers, so that's I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't. These numbers are really weird. Hmm. This is a poorly written article. Had an interesting week, work-wise. Um, it, it never fails that whenever you come in to kind of help pick up where another developer left off, one of the things I dread is that they didn't write unit tests. And that's usually something they leave for the end, and it's really frustrating because I don't know how the code is supposed to work. I don't know what they did or what they wrote, and so I have to read the entire code, and not only that, I have to figure out how to test it. And so writing code after the fact to unit test it is very difficult. Well, because they write code that's not testable. If you don't write for testability or if you don't understand how to write code that's testable, you undoubtedly will produce code that's not testable. Or yeah. not in any meaningful way, which is, I think, a follow-on a follow gripe is that people that do write tests, but the tests don't actually do anything. I mean, they, they do exercise enough code so they can deploy. Right, um, they, but that's all they're doing. They're not the code is actually not testing anything. It's not checking, and it's not verifying. It's not asserting. And but this is, I mean, I, I do enough. I've seen enough orgs and worked with enough enough code. I mean, this is the way most code is written out there. And and from top built from top, you know, like top of the line consultants, this is the code they're producing. Because I'm often called to fix this stuff. You are too. I mean, we do. This is what we. You know, this is one of the things we do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I guess I struggle with, you know, well, what's the answer to that? I mean, I guess developers just need to, to take care with their code and learn how to code better. But, you know, I think for a lot of them, test driven development is foreign to them. They, they had never really been exposed to it until they got to the Salesforce platform and, and Salesforce enforces the uses of it. They require it to get through code into production. So they've kind of had to deal with it and, as a result, they do the bare minimum, the 70, 75% code coverage. And it doesn't really do anything to, it doesn't do what it, unit tests are intended to do. Um, it, you know, it doesn't help them. I don't even do test-driven development on Salesforce projects. And the reason is because the way you do test-driven development is you write a small, quick, failing test, and then you start writing production code to make that test pass. And then you keep refactoring that production code until it's it's built well all the all the while maintaining that you know you're you still have your green bar. Right. Um, the reason I don't do test driven development or true test driven dri- the reason I don't do <laughs> <laughs> easy for me to say the reason I don't do true test driven <laughs> I haven't even been drinking. How much the have reason you had? I I have nothing. <laughs> the, the reason I don't do TDD on Salesforce with Salesforce projects. It's because it's too damn slow. It you have to have you have to be able to run the tests have to be fast. I mean, I'm talking about, I mean, you know, if you do TDD with you know Java or Ruby or something, I mean, it's it's sub second, sub one second to run you know a few tests or to run the tests you're working with. 
and you need that really quick and you, you know, it's all, you know, I'm using my keyboard for every, so, you know, I'm for all of it. So I'm, I write the, I write a quick test and then I'll write some production code to make it pass. I'm, I'm constantly doing the key command to run that test to see if it's passing or not or to make sure it's still passing. That is impossible on Salesforce. It's way too slow. And that cycle, the, the round trip of the compile and save and then run the test. It's way too slow. So I don't do TDD on Salesforce, but I do, I do do a true like test after. So I'll write a production, you know, like a, a, a method in a, in a production class and then I'll test that. And then I'll write another method and I'll test that. So I don't, you know, it's not TDD. It's, it's test after, but it's test right after. And I, to me, I think that's a good compromise for doing force.com work. I mean, what do you do? Do you do true TDD? Do you write a failing test and then write the production code to make it pass and then refactor it to be keep, you know, continually refactor it to, to be, you know, a well-designed, well-factored code. No, I mean for the same reasons. I don't, I don't do that upfront test testing. So, I pretty much will will. I, I actually don't do it after every method. I'll, I'll sometimes write an entire class and then test it. Um, but I certainly don't release it to the functional team or to the BA or to the admin or whoever's going to actually do a functional test before we release it to production um, without having done unit testing. And that's what I'm finding most is what's happening is that code is written and it's being put out there to test to see if it works. And then it's only, it's only an afterthought. It's only a right before it's time to go to production that they start writing these unit tests. And that leaves no time to actually do it properly. No time to do your positive, negative tests. No time to do your assertions. No time to do any kind of, you know, real quality testing that's going to help the system in the long run. Yeah. So I think it's, I think it's safe to say that whether you do test first or test after, it still needs to be an integrated part of the development process. Like, you know, don't do all your coding and then think you're going to come back and do all your testing later because it's just not going to work out. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, you know what's yeah. even worse is dealing with it. You've done everything right. You've written your code. You've written your tests. They're they're great tests. Um, they cover. You, you almost have 100% code coverage, which, you know, is, is really hard to do if you, depending on what kind of your code you're testing. You go to release it, and you find that there's 20 other classes that have bare minimum, and or even less than minimum, and they're affecting your ability to release to production. Or, or they're broken because the way they designed their tests was to depend on certain data being existing in in production. Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, I was I was really happy with Salesforce requiring that you create your own data. I mean, of course there's an escape key with see with the see all data attribute. Um, but I think that's helped in forcing people to, to make sure that they create data and don't rely on data that's in the system. Cause inevitably what I saw is a bunch of hard coded IDs and, and all those kind of things that once you try to deploy those records with those IDs may not be there anymore. So while, while we're on this topic of like people writing just very unprofessional crummy code. What is up with these, you know, leading consultants hiring basically entry level or beginner developers and billing them out at two hundred, three hundred dollars an hour? I mean, I've even see I've seen job ads popping up and you know, calls from recruiters and things from these top firms that want to hire uh what they're calling beginner that's the key phrase are beginner developer, and I've seen entry level developer. Mm-hmm. Um What's up with that? I mean, I think well, the how, idea is that they're going to train them up, but I don't think they have anybody who is focused on that. When a company hires a, 
a professional consulting firm to to do work for them. Do you think they're do you think they're anticipating getting people they just brought in off the street that are brand new? Well, no. I mean, I mean, I think no. I th- I think you're. I think they expect they're getting like the best of the best. Absolutely, I think they're getting someone who who knows the system and can who can do the work and get it done faster and better than they would themselves if they had to do it internally and learn from scratch. I just think if some of these com- if some of these companies would could see or or understood the quality of the work being done for them, they would be pretty outraged. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think there's always. There's always room for entry level people on a project. I mean, obviously everyone needs to start from somewhere. It's just, you know, either adjust the rate or make sure that there's other people on the team who can guide them and help them advance their skills and actually allow them to contribute to the project in a positive way. I yeah, I just think you need to cut your teeth some other way, not on a project where you're where you're being billed out at $300 an hour and you're you're being represented as well, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't expect an entry level person to be represented as a as a senior architect or anything like that on a project. No, it's it's happening anyway. So, did you see this today? Um, Salesforce was having a fairly significant production issue where tests were not running right. Um, and yes, it was affecting me. Yeah, I, I, I think it was affecting everyone. And the question was, you know, of course, people go to, you know, as as you do when something seems to be going wrong with the system, you, the first thing you think is, okay, is something wrong with the system? So you go to trust.salesforce.com and you look and there, it it doesn't indicate there's anything wrong. Yet there are Salesforce people privately confirming that they are having major issues, but trust.salesforce.com says everything's fine. Yeah, I did look at trust after, after I saw a few people um, mentioning the delay and, and even saying, hey, let's put something on the trust then. Uh, I did notice a few... You know, their information icons on a few, but all it said was the performance degradation. And, and, you know, when trust came out, I was really excited because I was, because there were times where the system would go down or we'd have these issues. We wouldn't know what's going on or when it was going to come back, or even if they knew about it and were working on it. And, and it was really frustrating. So when they finally came out with trust, I was really excited. I thought, finally, we have a way to kind of check the status. If we're having issues, we can at least look at it and we can communicate a message to our users that, hey, yeah, we know about it, we're working on it, and we'll get back to you soon. But what, what ends up happening is, is I think they try to hedge a bit and say, and say well, we're not going to post anything if we can try and fix it in 15, 30 minutes or an hour before anybody notices. And that that's kind of, I think that's kind of crappy of them. Yeah, well, this was going on for hours. Um, and when I, when I looked, it had been going on for quite a long time, and there was nothing on trust at that point. So they did, I'm glad they, they finally, I guess, listed it as a performance degradation because... It took them a long time to get to get to that point. Yeah, that's just I that's mean, always disappointing. That's the other frustration just, is is that there are times where I see issues with the system, can't log in or can't do anything, see nothing on trust. Yet the next day, I'll finally see a little warning notification that something happened yesterday. Yet that entire day wasn't it wasn't posted. Yeah, and that doesn't it kind of violates or it defeats the purpose of having a trusted source of information. Right. Wish they'd fix that. I mean, you know, it's. It's the balance of you don't want to list every little thing that's wrong. It's like airing your dirty laundry almost. But I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna say that's what it is, then that's what it needs to be. It needs to be something you can trust. And you know, even if it's a minor issue or only affecting a small number of customers, I mean, there's, I mean, how many dozens or hundreds of developers today were going, what What am I doing wrong? You know, I know. It says the system's fine. I must be doing something wrong. I mean, 
it's not good. I agree. That would change the name because I don't trust it anymore. <laughs> I miss <laughs> mistrust.salesforce.com. Mistrust, maybe trust. Anything else going on? Do we want to talk about when is Dreamforce? Uh, I think November 18th. 18th, yep. Um, let's see. What are they going to be doing? They'll be talking about exact target, right? Marketing, a lot of marketing. It seems like it seems like there's a race nowadays to acquire or build this um, online marketing, like marketing intelligence, and all kind of wrapped around the social thing. Yep. Yeah, that's pretty big right now. Um, oh, L uh, Larry Ellison might be at Dreamforce. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's a done deal, supposedly. That's interesting. I wonder if he'll be a no-show again. Uh, more than 20,000 developers. Well, didn't they recently sign a new partnership deal for, for some database technology, I think? Are you talking about how they announced they were going to be migrating to Postgres? No, no, that's not true. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Yes, it is. The Salesforce even hired 50 Postgres developers. 50. Oh, maybe that was an old article I read sometime. I thought they just signed an, a new agreement for new services, but I guess not. Yeah, I wonder how that's going, the Postgres transition. I mean, I know they're still... In fact, I saw a talk recently from one of Salesforce's main tech guys. It was like a DevOps talk, and he was talking about just... I mean, they've built some pretty awesome stuff to, um, to make all their Oracle databases uh, fault-resistant. And it's all based on having kind of cheap hardware. Mm -hmm. um, what he had some funny, some funny terms. Soft was one of them. Something on fragile technology or something like that. I don't know. Flaky, flaky technology. Um, and it's just the idea that if you have the right continually, uh, like continual backup or uh, redundancy processes in place, then you can have fairly crappy hardware, and you can, you know, because you know failures are going to happen. Right. Right. Um, I think, I think they had Salesforce has was like a thousand or 10,000 hard drives go bad a year. Wow. Yeah. And, but it's, you know, when, when you've got that built into your plan, then it's, it's okay, but it's all wrapped around. It's still all wrapped around Oracle though. Um, and I know they've got just, I mean, there's just so much baked with Oracle as a, a, a key ingredient. That'll, that'll be hard. So I don't know if they're still working on the Postgres transition or not. Yeah, it made a, it made pretty big news in the developer space because they wanted to hire fifty Postgres developers. So that was pretty exciting. Hmm. That is interesting. Anyway, um, yeah. So the so the one million dollar hackathon. That'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, I don't know the like all of the like the famous people on the music acts. Who's so who's gonna be there? I, none of them. In fact, they all make me glad I'm staying home. Uh, I think it's Green Day. Go. I have no desire to see Green Day. Oh yeah, me neither. Um, who else is gonna be there? Uh, who are who are the CEO main... of Facebook? Um, yeah, don't want. What's her name? CEO of Yahoo, uh, Marissa Meyer. Uh, Marissa Meyer. Yeah, Sheryl Sandberg. Yeah, uh, Deepak Chopra. Oh my gosh, can't can't stand him. Um, well. Oh, he had Tony Robbins the other year. The other year. Was it last year? Was it last year that I went or the year before? I don't remember. <laughs> I think that was a couple of years ago. Maybe. No, he had, yeah. he's had him there a couple of times. I think he was there. Maybe it was two years ago. Well, they can't have the CEO of Burberry there anymore because she now works for Apple. Yep, that's right. She was one of the big speakers last time. I th she, yeah, they were. she was a repeat offender. Mm-hmm. 
they always did. I mean, they do these great like vignettes on the, um, you know, video the, productions. Maybe it wasn't last year that I went or maybe it was, but maybe it was the two years ago, but, um, they Coke had introduced this really cool vending machine that lets you create any flavor of drink you wanted. And I have yet to see that thing anywhere. I see those all over the place. Really? All Wendy's have those. Yeah, a lot of places have those. No, not. Oh, they have them in this in the fast yeah. food places. Yes. Well, maybe that's why because they they had marketed as this mini machine you need to get to walk up to like at a Seven Eleven or something and make your own Coke or something. And uh, I've yet to see <laughs> anything on it. It's, it's so they have in addition to the like the typical sodas they have um, like all these flavorants or you know like yeah, cherry and right and exactly and so you pick your base soda and then you pick. But this was in conjunction with an app on your phone that you could like, kind of like you do with Starbucks, you can make your own drink and save it and then just kind of click a a button to have them make it. And it was like that. You'd walk up to the machine with your phone and you'd basically name your drink, you know, John's Purple Nurple or something like that. (laughs) And then you'd you'd walk up to the machine and, and and scan a barcode from your phone and it would make that drink. Wow. Well, that seems like overkill to me. It's pretty easy to just to walk walk up to the thing and you it's a touchscreen. You hit coke and then you hit, you know, cherry and vanilla and then it go, you know, anyway. Yeah, it's a convenience thing. I mean, those machines are always about convenience and so walk up to a machine with your favorite drink, just scan it and there it is. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of drinks, what did you bring to drink? Um some good old H2O. H2O. Huh? Yeah. You're not feeling yeah, too I'm well, are you? A little, little under the weather today. I decided to uh go with an old-fashioned and what that is is a little bourbon, a little sugar, a uh, couple of spritz of bitters. Uh, I, I have water in it. Some people say club soda, um, but I just have a little bit of water, and that's that's basically how it is. It's it's apparently the original old fashioned because I think some of the newer versions have uh, fruits, either orange or cherry, uh, mashed into it. Mm. Yeah, I like old fashioned. I I like almost any drink that's got bitters in it, but that's one of them. And I usually do about half of the sugar that's normal because I I don't like it to be real sweet. Yeah, I do like an old fashioned. That vanilla old fashioned is really good too, man. It's like it's an old fashioned, but it's got in addition to those those ingredients, it's got a little bit of vanilla. You can either do like a vanilla bean if you want to be fancy, mm-hmm. um, and then it's got uh, like orange zest, so it's kind of orangey and vanilla. It's man, it's good. Yeah, and I think I read that. I guess it's a favorite drink on one of the characters on Mad Men or something like that, or and and so that's kind of increased its popularity recently. Yeah, it's been around a long time. I mean, that to me, that's a like a classic drink. Um, like I think it goes back to the eighteen hundreds, maybe yeah. even longer than that. Who knows? Well, that's all I got for tonight. I guess that's a good day, sir. Good day, sir. <laughs>